0: If you don't have a Bible, please pick one up off the back shelf. As we open up the windows behind me, I hear the buzz. <laughs> you know why we do that? So you don't have to look at this space. See, you can. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, this is Sunday morning teaching. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave and the men said to David, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and secretly cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the truths that are contained and embedded and and produced within. It's it's so marvelous, Lord. We recognize there is no other, there is no other book on the planet inspired. There There are no other words inspired by the living God, as is your word that you have magnified above all your name. And so we open this morning, Lord, not worshiping or praising the word, but but desiring to be changed by, altered by your word through the work of your Holy Spirit among us today. And Jesus, help us to just be a little more like you. And Lord, for anyone searching or, or wanting to know something about you, wanting to understand something of you, Lord Jesus, I pray that will be made clear this morning. So Holy Spirit, we wait for you to teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. I love this story. I perhaps, I, I may have taught this chapter more than any other in the Bible. Part of that is because we go to En Gedi every time we go to Israel. And so we always have teaching there and so that obviously brings the occasion back around over and over. But coming to this chapter again this week and, and reading through it and thinking about what it really teaches us. Uh, I, I was moved once again, uh, this is not old hat for me. There, there is a revelation here for me that, that I realized this week, but it all happened at En Gedi. It took place at En Gedi. En Gedi means the spring of the wild goat. N is spring in the Hebrew. Gedi is the wild goat. This is named for the little ibex, which is, they, they dot the, the, the cliffs and the mountains and the countryside there in the, in the desert regions of Israel near to the Dead Sea, They're a gazelle-like little mountain goat, and they can stand anywhere. These things are amazing. For the first time just this last year, or just a couple months ago now, we saw these ibexes in trees. I kid you not, standing on the thin branches of acacia trees, I looked up, and there's a little ibex (laughs) checking us out. I'm like, wow. Wow. These things must weigh nothing. I mean, they, they perch on impossible cliffs and they spread around the region. So in Getty, the spring of the wild goat or of the ibex, actually the plural for ibex, you might want to get this down, super important to the teaching this morning, ibises. Anyway, in Gedi is just the most beautiful oasis. You drive down from Jerusalem and along the Dead Sea, and it is barren. The Dead Sea is what, 30, 33, 34% salt and mineral compared to like 3% in the Pacific Ocean. And and there's nothing lives down there. It's a very barren countryside. But then you come around this curve, and all of a sudden, like a gaping mouth, there's a, a cliff face that runs right up to the Judean Plateau. And there are trees there. There are all manner of, of trees growing, and, and, and it's a beautiful place. And there's, if you get just to the base of it, there are waterfalls and pools that, that, that pour down from way up high. If you climb up to the uppermost cliff area, there's a waterfall on the top. They call it the Nahal David which is the River of David, and it pours over the limestone cliffs, and of course, then there are branches and leaves and and greenery hanging down off those cliffs, and as you walk through those yawning mountains, the the water flows all the way down to the sea, and it pools in these little shaded grottos. It's really an amazing place, a beautiful place to stop and to rest and and to pray and to consider the Lord. By Solomon's time, Vineyards were actually planted at the base of En Gedi. There there is archaeological evidence of perfumers' workshops having been there at one time. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, verse 14 says, My beloved is to me like a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. So we know that this has long been a place that has been visited. In fact, nowadays it's visited by over a million people annually people who, who will go to Israel and they will head down to En Gedi, and then school groups from Israel are always there. you got kids running everywhere. It's, it's really an amazing place to see. And En Gedi is going to remain. It's going to be there in the coming kingdom. So if you haven't had a chance to travel with us to Israel, your chance is coming. You will be able to see En Gedi. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, gives this amazing prophecy that starts out in the temple. In fact, uh, Ezekiel writes and says, he brought me back to the door of the house, that is the temple, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house from south of the altar. Down in verse eight of Ezekiel 47, it says, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah, and then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea, this is the Dead Sea, become fresh. And then in verse 10 of Ezekiel 47, he writes, and it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engedi to Enegleim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like fish from the great sea, very many. Those waters flowing from underneath the temple spread out, get bigger and bigger and bigger as they head toward the Dead Sea. And my friends, from Engedi to Enegleim is a distance of 20 miles. This is a river that will be massive. And it will probably have all kinds of tributaries and little streamlets coming down off, again, the Judean plateau down toward the Dead Sea. And there are gonna be fishermen out there. It's gonna be a beautiful place in the coming kingdom. The Bible says their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea very many. And just so you know, there are already little hints of this. Not just the Nachal David coming down, but they have suddenly, they have sinkholes in the Dead Sea region that have been emerging, and these sinkholes have begun to be filled with fresh water. Bizarre, because all you have down there is a dead sea, but these sinkholes, they're filling up with fresh water, and they discovered fish in the sinkholes, and no one has any idea. To this day, no one has a clue where the fish came from, but they're there. So the Lord is already giving us little real-time hints there at En and near the Dead Sea of this very prophecy in Ezekiel 47. We're not here to study Ezekiel 47, but I want you to know this is all going to be going on at this same place where our story takes place this morning at En But in 1 Samuel 24, En though beautiful, though an oasis, is also a hideout. So this is where David has fled with a band of, of one-time distressed and indebted and discontented men. David flees there, and, and he, he's kind of making a hideout there with some, some loyal brothers. By this point, he's got four to 600 men who are loyal to him, supporting him. Now, we don't have anything in 1 Samuel 24 that tells us how many were with him in the cave in the story we're about to read. So I'm thinking probably not 600, But there were a few men that that were there with David in that cave on that particular day. It's a remarkable turn of events because we just a couple of weeks ago read about David slaying Goliath. That young 17, 18-year-old kid coming to the rescue truly of Israel by the power of God, by the hand of God, and suddenly everybody is singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his 10,000s. And now all of a sudden David is on the run. He is the king's son-in-law. He's married to Michal, the king's daughter. And yet he's being unfairly hunted as the king's singular enemy. He's the anointed of God. We read about that as well, 1 Samuel 16. And yet though he's the anointed, he is unjustly pursued as an outlaw and even given... Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, David refuses to seize his rightful ascendancy over Israel. Perhaps that's the most amazing thing at all in this turn of events is he was anointed in chapter 16. We're in chapter 24. He still has not taken hold of the kingdom for which he was ultimately anointed. What's going on, David? 1 Samuel 24 25, and 26 give the greatest testimony, in my opinion, of David as a man over, after God's own heart. It's in these chapters that we really see what it means to be after God's heart. And in the chapter before us this morning, it takes us to the very summit of the spiritual life. That's, that's why I'm calling it this, the summit of the spiritual life. This is the high watermark, the high point, the apex of spirituality, we'll get there this morning to discuss, well, what is that? If you're seeking after God and you want to be a spiritual man, a spiritual woman, led by the Spirit of God in the, in the, after the person of Christ, then you wanna be on this summit. You wanna reach this climb. What is it? Well, we'll see it. But it's here that David will realize it David, at this point, is now in his early 20s, so young adults, pay close attention. There is something vital on the climb that the spiritual man and the spiritual woman has to learn, something we must learn. Now, this is not yet the summit, but it's something we learn along the way, and it's, very, it's this. You might want to jot it down if you don't just remember this. God's promises must be done God's way. God's promises must be done God's way. Keeping your finger in 1 Samuel 24, why don't you turn over to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. You know, the very statement, God's promises must be done God's way, implies that there are an awful lot of us who want God's promises, but we wanna do them our way. We want to take it the way we want to take it. We want to ultimately receive those promises. We like the sound of the promises, but we want to work them out in our souls, in our lives. We want to make it happen, but God's promises must be done God's way. David in Psalm 57 writes from En Listen to what he writes. Psalm 57, in the heading, it's for the choir director set to Al-Tashit, al was, we think, a, a song, a, a musical um, a composition, and Al-Tashit literally means do not destroy. So he wrote these words to a song called Do Not Destroy. It's a, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So here David is writing at Engedi. listen to this, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. You Bible students know the word save in Hebrew is Yeshua, where we get the name Yeshua, Jesus. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Then David adds that Selah, we think that musical pause. And he writes, God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth, his grace and his truth. John chapter one, verse 15, 16 says, grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. And David writes in verse four, my soul is among lions. I must lie down among those who breathe forth fire. The sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They've prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. There it is again, grace and truth. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Written from En Gedi, Written in a time of distress. At a time of, of what we would think would be anxiety and fear. And yet he writes this psalm. Other psalms we talked about a week ago Wednesday. Psalm 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 142 are all written in this season of life. More than 10 psalms that we have in the book. Written by David on the run from Saul. But this one to me is the penultimate psalm the one where we see the heart of David here at in Getty. And I have to ask the question, when you read through it and you come to the final verse of Psalm 57, how do you worship and praise the Lord in the midst of being treated so unfairly? How do you continue to praise God when people are being unjust? And when you're not getting a fair shake, how do you patiently wait God's promises to be done God's way? And that's the question before us. We'll go back to chapter 24 of 1 Samuel and let's walk it through. Verse one, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." If you get one little comment about the Philistines. You hear nothing about the war, nothing about Saul's exploits there because really it's irrelevant to the things of God and to what God is doing in this moment. He said, so, behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi, and Saul took 3,000 chosen men, crack squad of Saul's IDF from all Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. That's the surha ye'elim, the rocks of the wild goats, which again is, is recognizing the wildlife that is there. Saul is never without a scout. Saul is is a paranoid soul man. He's got spies everywhere, but his spies are not looking for what the Philistines are up to. His spies are looking for what his son-in-law is doing. What is David doing? But David, in spite of Saul's bitterness and his anger and his jealousy, David has a place to run. Look back in chapter 23, at the end of verse 14, it says, Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So we recognize through this whole season of David's life, there was a protection. This is the issue. David's faith was not determined by Saul's behavior. It was determined by clinging to God's promises, God's way. He held on to the Lord. He ran to the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Not perfectly. He's flawed. We saw that in a recent study. We know that, that David wasn't all you know, he lies to protect himself and ends up bringing about a slaughter. He's gonna do other things that are not godly, but this man returns always to the Lord. He clings to God's promises being done God's way. Is there in your life a Saul who's done damage to your faith? Is there someone that you could name? Perhaps I shouldn't even raise the issue because it's just gonna tick you off. Is there someone that you think of or maybe a past situation, maybe a church experience that waylaid your faith, that did harm, that left wounds? Someone or some situation where there are teeth of spears and arrows as David wrote, or or whose tongue is or has been a sharp sword, Uh, someone who has marked you, wounded you, hurt you in some way, even driven you into spiritual hiding. God's promises must be done God's way. Psalm 89, verse one, David says, I will sing of the loving kindness. Every time you hear loving kindness, it's grace. It's chesed in the Hebrew. I will sing of the grace of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, grace will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. David wrote in Psalm 119, 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God's promises are settled. Once spoken, they are locked in. That is, they must happen. So the question is, can you take him at his word? Can you trust him regardless of the situations of life that have left you wounded along the way? Because as as we read last week, Psalm 40, verse four, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. So often our faith ends up defined by enemies or defined by those who have hurt us, rather than our faith being defined by the settled word of God. The promises of God are unchanging, regardless of what has happened, what has taken place in any of our lives. And it's that kind of faith that we learn on the climb. It's that kind of faith that takes us to the summit of the spiritual life. Still haven't gotten there yet, but there is a summit the, the the ultimate expression of the spiritual man of the spiritual woman but the faith that takes you there is a faith that trusts in god's promises done god's way verse 3 he came to the sheepfolds on the way that is saul where there was a cave and saul went in to relieve himself now david and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave and you can't make this stuff up this is great <laughs> This scene in the scriptures is, I call it divinely orchestrated and absolutely ironic. Saul goes in to go to the bathroom. Relieve himself is a good translation, actually. The literal translation, if you're reading the the King James, says Saul went in to cover his feet. What's he putting his socks on? What what does that exactly mean? And you can skip right by and miss what's happening. That's what the robes do when you squat down. They cover your feet. I mean, I'm trying not to be too crude here, but let me explain what they did. So you're out on a mission or you're on a trip or you're just journeying and you need to, you know, do what we all need to do. Hey, everybody needs to, right? So you would take a little trowel and then you would go find a cave or, 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 or some bushes or something where no one could see you, and you'd take your trowel, and you would drop trowel, <laughs> trowel, anyway, and you would dig a little hole and use that as your uh, commode, and then you would cover it up with your little trowel, and you'd be on your way, and that was kind of the, the way things were done, so to, to cover the feet was to go in and, and dig out a little spot and squat down. You have the picture. You could say Saul was feeling a bit flushed. He's out searching for David, but he has nothing to go on. Some think he was just a party pooper. I don't know. By the way, (laughs) did you hear about the guy who swallowed several Scrabble tiles from the board game Scrabble? Swallowed several tiles? His next trip to the bathroom spelled trouble. (laughs) That's all. What did, David, what did David spell out for us in Psalm 57, verse 6? Listen to it again. They dug a pit before me and have fallen into the midst of it. This is what David is describing. Well, how do you know that? Psalm 7, verse 15. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return <laughs> upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own skull. This is graphic, but it's beautiful biblical language to describe what happens when someone's out for revenge. You want to understand God's promise is done God's way. There ultimately is justice. God is faithful to that. And those who would, who would dig a pit to entrap someone, hey, it's gonna come back on your own head, that's what David's saying. And that's what the Bible's describing here. As Saul goes in to dig out a little place to relieve himself, David says, it's gonna come back on you because you're coming after me unjustly, unfairly. There's actually a better return for the skull. Romans 12, verse 18 the Apostle Paul writes, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men." Yeah but, yeah, but they're they're fighting. They're they're coming at it. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's your. It's not their job. It's your job. That's my job. It's my responsibility to seek to be at peace with everyone, regardless of what they've done to me. Saul says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God's promise is done God's way. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I read that and go, yeah, burning coals. What does that mean? Paul is not describing how to burn your enemies and fry your foes. What Paul describes when he says, well, well, he's quoting a proverb for one thing. It's Proverb 25, verses 21 and 22, which reads, if your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. But this probably refers, we think it refers to an old, an ancient Middle Eastern ritual in which a person showed repentance by carrying a pan of burning coals on his head. That this was an act of repentance. And so, what Paul is drawing off there from that old picture is very simply someone. Brought to repentance. How is someone brought to repentance? Paul tells us in Romans 2, verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God brings you to repentance? It's, it's not by banging someone over the head with their guilt and their shame and their wrongness that they repent. It's the kindness of God. I was watching this morning. Uh, there's, you can find this on YouTube, but it was kind of the beginnings of the Calvary Chapel movement, and it's a conversation with the guys who were in the, the early 70s Christian music, one of the first Christian bands called Love Song, and they're there with Pastor Chuck, and they're just talking about how it all started, and one of the members of Love Song talked about his first experience at Calvary Chapel He didn't even know who Jesus was, but he went to this this service and he said, there were two things that I came out of that with. Number one, it was like Jesus was really there. And number two, Pastor Chuck was so kind and loving. He said, I'll never forget the love that I felt when I visited that day. And I got to thinking about that and thinking, you know what? That, That really is what this is about. It's about loving people. It's about showing the kindness, the loving kindness of God, because that's what brings us to repentance. When we start to be cut to the heart and realize our own sin and our need for the forgiveness of God. Well, keep that kindness in mind. But I call this situation, Saul goes in to relieve himself. David and his men are in that cave. There are hundreds of caves in this region. The chance that Saul would wander in to the very cave that David is hiding in is completely ironic and, as I said before, divinely orchestrated. It looks like the Lord lured Saul into this particular cave. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but again, the coincidence is stunning that Saul goes into the cave where David is, and by the way, David's men believed it was God's will, They believed that God was behind this. Look at verse four. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day, this is the day which the, no, they said, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, they're all in a cave. Saul's over there doing his thing. David is with his men and his men are going, This is it, David. Go get him. God ordained it. God has set this up, obviously. Guess what? The Lord never said that. There's nowhere where the Lord said to David that I'm going to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as you see fit. That's not in the the Bible. It's not what the Lord said to David. When did God promise David the soulish satisfaction of doing unto his enemy as his enemy was trying to do unto him? You can't find it in scripture. It's not the way God's promises are done. But as boys, they're quietly singing, this is the day, this is the day. You know what this reminds me? That even my closest, most loyal, most trusted friends and allies are capable of bad counsel. Those who will say, well, here's what you do. And you listen to them because you trust them and you love them. And it may even be a Christian brother or, or, or sister. But we as human beings are capable of giving bad counsel to one another. Proverbs 21, verse 30 says, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Speaking of the Messiah tells us the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Listen, the Spirit of counsel and of strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of counsel, the first and best counsel that you have is the Lord's. It's the Lord's counsel. It is not the counsel even of a Christian brother or sister or a trusted family member or friend, your best counsel is the Lord, because God's promises must be God, done God's way, not man's way. And so much of our counsel is human wisdom, is soulish wisdom to do it our way, to bring about the results the way we want to bring them about. But you see, we have we have the counsel of the Lord. Yes, we do have the counsel of believers, by the way, and there's there's The Bible even says that there's value in that, and and there's wisdom in the counsel of many. But while we have the counsel of believers, the spiritual person, man or woman, relies first on the counsel of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of God's word. That's where we go to know how we are to be. Even as Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. That's a promise. It's one of God's promises, that you have the mind of Christ, the counsel of the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Now, I agree with David's men, at least insofar as this is the Lord's doing. I do believe the Lord lured Saul in there, but not so that Saul would be put to death, but that David would be proven that this is for David, That this is to prove David's heart. This is a pass or fail test, depending on whether he uses his soul or listens with his spirit. By the way, God knows what the outcome's gonna be. But he brings this situation, I believe, before David to prove David. And so what does David do? David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. What's he doing? he's testing out this theory that Saul has been given into his hands. He begins in stealth. It's it's comical, and yet at the same time, there's there's an air of, of tragedy about to happen here should David follow through with what his men want him to do, and he sneaks up in stealth behind an indisposed Saul, and he does something here that is very serious and very symbolic, in cutting off the edge of Saul's robe, he is challenging the ascendancy, the reign of Saul. He's, he's throwing out a question. What do you mean? The edge of Saul's robe, if you don't know this, Numbers 15, 37, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels. Tassels, the word is zit. On the corners, the word corner is kanap of their garments throughout their generations. So they need to have seats hanging off of the canop, the corner of their robes, of their garments. And that they shall put the tassel, the zit, on each corner, canop a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. This was the idea, that on the garments, specifically of the men, that they would sew on these tassels onto the canop, the corner. Blue tassels would hang down, and every time they noticed those tassels, they would think of Torah, the laws, the commandments of God. And it was was one of God's many ways to practically keep his law, his commands, and his person before his people. Ultimately, Jewish people began tying little knots on the tzitzit. 613 little knots would be tied on the tzitzit to remind them of the 613 commandments of Torah, I think that's taking thou shalt not very seriously. So, the, are you with me? Thou shalt not? Is because they tied knots? 613 thou shalt, okay. Alright. So, so, the Zizi with the knots on it, would be sewn to the kanop. And again, the kanop is the corner. Now, on the corner of the robe, they would tie or they would, they would actually sew a square patch. That square patch, which came to be called the kanop, that square patch often would have like an embroidered name or position or authority. If you were a, a governor of a village, then it would be written on the kanop. Whatever, your family name on the canop, your position or job title on the canop. Remember the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage? Luke chapter eight, verse 44, came up behind Jesus and it says she touched the fringe of his cloak, the canop. She grabs hold of the canop and immediately her hemorrhage stopped and Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? That's another great story. All the people pressing in, pressing around. Peter says, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you, Lord. And he goes, no, 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 I felt power go out from me. Ooh, that makes me shake. Why did she touch the kanap? That's what she went for because she knew a good Jewish woman. She recognized and believed in the authority of Jesus and thought to herself, if I can just touch the kanap. And it wasn't faith in the little square patch. And it wasn't, it wasn't that she believed in, in the seat or the tassel. It's that she knew that this represented authority and she believed in the authority of Jesus Christ to heal her and she was immediately healed. Because she grabbed for the canop. Here, David cuts off the canop. And it is a direct challenge to the authority of Saul as king. David is testing out his men's theory that, that Saul has been given into his hands to kill him and to take the throne that is rightfully his. How do we know that that's what he was doing? Verse five, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And the only thing that makes any sense out of his conscience bothering him is that he had an intent that was not good. That he's listening to his men and he's, he's challenging the authority of Saul. And the moment he does it and sneaks back to his men and now he's holding that, that canop, his conscience is bothering him. Your conscience wouldn't bother you for a little prank. You know, if you were just having fun, wait till Saul gets home and finds his robe cut. <laughs> this is gonna be great. I can see doing that. I don't see doing that and having your conscience bother you. Literally, the word is lebiak, which means David was heartstruck. Heartstruck. In his stealth, he was this close to running Saul through this close, you get this sense almost of of the struggle of the soul man and the spiritual man as the soul man sneaks up and cuts off the robe with a knife that he could have just stabbed Saul right then and there. And sneaks back, and as this is going on, oh, David's spiritual man is going, it's not right, it's not right, David. His heart is struck, and David remembers that God's promises must be done God's way, not David's way. He knew his motives. He realized the kingdom was not his for the taking. It was not his right to challenge, as you'll see in a moment, the one he calls the anointed of God. Saul was still the anointed of God as far as David is concerned. Now, listen, you and I know, we know at this point in the story that the kingdom is torn from Saul. We know God had already removed his Holy Spirit from Saul and had given his Holy Spirit to David, but David didn't know. Oh, I think he knew the Spirit was with him, but he didn't know the position that Saul was in, and he didn't know that God had stripped the kingdom from him. This is a challenge to that, that David realizes in the moment, this is not right, this is not okay, and David is in spirit, and he knows the kingdom Again, it's not his for the taking, but the kingdom is his for the receiving. To receive the kingdom, to receive the promises of God when God deems it to be the right time, verse six. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. Now, because of the Lord, far be it to me because of Yahweh that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, that is Saul. To stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 7: David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Listen, there is a there's a heated argument that takes place in the back of the cave. Because the word persuaded, he didn't just go, hey, let's not do this. Bad idea, guys. Oh, okay. These guys are loaded for bear. These guys, by the way, did you know there's a bear on Whidbey Island? Yeah, my neighbors found some uh, evidence, kind of like Saul's evidence, (laughs) evidence of a bear on their property right next door to me. So I'm I'm like, well, that's great. Anyway, I don't know what, these guys were loaded for bear. They're ready to, totally irrelevant, that just popped into my mind. And sometimes I can't keep it from coming out. (laughs) So they're ready to kill Saul. They send, David goes over there, comes back with the little edge. No, no, come on, David. You gotta kill him, this is the time, this is our moment. Look, we can take him, easy. It'll be a done deal, we'll just wipe him out right here. They are ready to fight. Now Rick, are you reading into this? No, because David persuaded them otherwise and the word persuaded is yusasa, which means tore them apart. This is a very graphic word. Commentators don't understand the use of the word here in the Bible. He tore them apart? What's that about? It it must just be a a misnomer or perhaps the wrong word was put in there. I love how the commentators try to explain things. It's very simple. The word tore apart is the right word. It's not too strong for the occasion. David has to, I mean, their pressure on him is so great. He has to tear into them and cut them down to size to keep them from killing Saul. Imagine the scene, though. Again, Saul's over here. And they're in the they're all in the same cave. How Saul didn't hear them is amazing to me. How Saul didn't hear David creep up behind him and hear his robe being cut. I don't know as he's singing oh, Susanna while he's, you know, I don't know what he's doing. But they're back, they're going, kill him, go, kill kill him. No, I'm not gonna, this, I'm gonna kill him. And then David, David's like, stop it. We will not do this. And he, wow, he takes remarkable authority to cut them down to size, to tear apart their desire under intense pressure, mind you, to kill Saul. And David is proven. He has proven the spiritual man by this test, this test in the wilderness. By the way, so was the son of David. Proven in the wilderness. Proven under a test of the Lord. Not a test you know, when, when we talk about the temptations of Jesus, it's not, to the devil they were, in, they were temptations. To the Lord, they were a test. What's the difference? The test was not to prove Jesus to himself or prove Jesus to God, but to prove Jesus to you and to me. To prove that he would not succumb to sin, though in human flesh, that he would not fall To the temptation of the devil, it was approving of him before us. Matthew 4, 8 tells us again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. See, in the cave, David's men were saying, time to be the king. Time to take the kingdom. All you got to do is kill this guy. David was proven to be spiritual in that he did not do it. Jesus is being tempted with the same thing now by the devil in the wilderness. The same temptation. You can be king of the world right now. All you gotta do is just a little kneel, just a little obeisance, you know? Just a little nod, say you worship me, and and it's all done. What's the temptation? No cross, no suffering, no hardship, no pain, no difficulty, no watching your friends go through the pain of your death. None of that. And what the devil tempted Jesus with, by the way, is exactly what the Father promised to the Son. In Psalm 2, verse 8, ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Satan tempted Jesus with God's promise, but God's promise must be done God's way. And this is what Jesus shows us. This is what David has learned. David goes through a crucible in the wilderness. Jesus will go from the wilderness to the cross, ultimately. Both men will emerge from a cave at the very summit of the spiritual life. Watch this, verse eight. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, "'My lord, the king.'" And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men, saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father see. Indeed, See the edge of your robe in my hand, as he holds it up. For I did not, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. What a drama. He goes from, from he's the Lord's anointed, he calls him my Lord, the King, and, and then he calls him my Father in verse 11. When David gets out of the dark of the cave and actually sees the face of his enemy, he recognizes the enemy as his father, his father in law by his own wife. Sees him personally, sees him for who he is. By the way, stop texting people when you're angry. It's the worst thing you could possibly do because you are not seeing their face. Don't shoot off an angry email at someone. You go face-to-face. There's something different when we're face-to-face, when we look into the eyes. And even when you're arguing with someone face-to-face, look at their eyes. Don't look at their ear. Don't look at that little mole on their head that's always annoyed you. Look at the person. See who they are. It changes things. David now sees Saul, and he calls him, my father. And he turns what could have been a sly act of murderous rebellion into a spiritual act of rebellion overcome. And he does it, he does it by one thing, one thing. Notice David's language, again, going as his heart is softening towards Saul, my Lord, the king, to my father. But the summit of the spiritual life, when you reach the summit, it does that to a heart. It softens the heart. It helps us to see the other person more intimately. Okay, what what is it? What is it? The summit, the apex, the peak of spirituality is reached in this. Write it down. It's one word. Forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It is the greatest expression of love. It is the ultimate expression of the spiritual man, the spiritual woman. Forgiveness. It is the most spiritual the most Christ-like thing we will ever do. In Matthew 18, we're told that Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And I'm convinced Peter says it this way because he wants to make himself look good to Jesus. I did the math, Jesus, and I came up with this great answer seven times. Wow, that would make me a spiritual person. And Jesus says, Well, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So someone immediately writes down, okay, 490, that's that's how many times? And then 491, I'm out. No, that's not the point. Jesus goes way beyond Peter to say, this is not forgiveness is has no limits. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves, and when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That would be the equivalent in that day of 15 years hard labor, 10,000 talents, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, and said, have patience with me. I will repay everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt, free and clear. I'm sending this to Citibank. I want them to read this. Anyway. Anyway. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a day's wage. One day's wage, 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slave saw what happened, They were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that happened. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother, from your heart. Forgiveness is the summit of the spiritual life. Forgiveness is the highest act of love that any of us will commit or perform in this life. Luke 17, verse three, Jesus said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus says, forgive him. See, we all have our limits, but forgiveness has no limits. I forgave her three times, and she did it again. And Jesus would say, forgive her again. Well, I forgave him over and over and over, and here we are. He's doing it all over again. And Jesus says, hey, if he does it seven times a day, you forgive him seven times a day. What about the next morning? Well, his mercies are new every morning, aren't they? So you forgive again. Now, what's interesting to me is Jesus teaches this to the apostles, Luke 17, uh, verse three and verse four, and then in verse five, the apostles say something, that they get it. They understand what is required for this kind of forgiveness, and they say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. I love it. That is so spot on. How in the world am I going to be able to climb to the summit of the spiritual life, the ability to forgive another person? How am I gonna do that? Requires faith. Faith? Faith that the relationship can be restored? No. Faith that I can do this? No. Faith In Jesus, because without faith in Jesus, oh, you may be able to forgive once or twice or three times, but you will not forgive 70 times seven. You will not forgive without limitation. Unlimited, unmerited forgiveness. It comes by faith in the Lord. Verse 12, back in 1 Samuel 24, David calls out to Saul. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. Right there, David takes himself out of the equation. That's faith. That is the faith to forgive. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand, David repeats, shall not be against you. He says, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? David's describing himself. What threat am I to you? I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Therefore, he says it again, the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. This is the first time Saul calls his name. First time we hear him say, David, since chapter 18. Since this whole debacle began, this breaks Saul's heart. David's forgiveness, it produces real-time conviction for King Saul. So, as we come to the conclusion of this story, three quick things to note. Number one, forgiveness may change the heart of the forgiven. It, it may change the heart of the forgiven. This is part of why we forgive. Now, unfortunately, in the world, this is the whole reason people forgive, is they, they forgive expecting it to change the other person's heart. It may. It may change the heart of forgiven. Saul is weeping here. He is broken And he speaks David's name, as I said, ever since 1 Samuel 18, 9, which says Saul looked at David with suspicion. From that day on, he never calls him David until now. My son, David, is that you? And he just breaks. For now. For now. See, forgiveness may change the heart of the forgiven, but it may not indefinitely anyway, it may work in the moment. They may go right back to it again, which is why Jesus says you keep forgiving. Sometimes it takes being forgiven 1,700 times before a person gets it. So forgiveness may change the heart of the forgiven. Well, then the world would ask, why forgive at all? Because forgiveness always changes the heart of the forgiver. It always changes the heart of the one who forgives. Suddenly, when we begin to offer the offender the benefit of the doubt, when we see their fallible humanity, even as our own, we, we recognize what Jesus meant. Luke 23, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left, but Jesus was saying, you know it well, Father, forgive them. What? That's it. They don't know what they're doing. And the moment you forgive someone, you begin to give them that benefit of the doubt, that that recognition that they really don't get how they've hurt you. They really don't get what they've done, what their sin was against you or their error. They don't understand that. And as you forgive, you come to that realization and you can join Jesus and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, yeah, but what did they do? Hey, if you're forgiving, your heart is softening and you are recognizing that God's promises must be done God's way. As God's promises only come to us by forgiveness. See, that's God's way. The only reason we are even sitting here this morning is forgiveness, the forgiveness of God. The only reason that you could, those of you who call yourselves Christian, It is one reason he forgave you your sin, otherwise you would not be one of his. You could not be a child of God, you could not be born again, you could not know him and worship him and be comforted by him and seek refuge in him. You couldn't do any of that if he had not first forgiven you. And that example in Jesus' parable of the one who was forgiven 15 years of wages versus the one who was forgiven a day or not forgiven a day, that's the contrast for me to forgive someone who has wronged me is, is epically different. Tiny in comparison to the forgiveness that God has given me, which is a forgiveness that looks over all eternity. That's huge. That's his forgiveness. God's promises, God's Way And as we forgive others, we come into that place. Not only do we see their heart, we understand them. We give them the benefit of the doubt, but we remember our own desperate need to be forgiven. And so forgiveness changes my heart when I forgive another. It may may change theirs. That's, That's my prayer, that's my hope. As the kindness of God leads to repentance, hopefully the kindness of my forgiveness of another will soften their heart and lead them to the same place but you know what? Regardless of how they react or respond, it's gonna change me. It's gonna draw me into the spiritual self like nothing I can do. There is no amount of Bible study and Bible memorization that draws you as deeply into the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, as forgiveness does. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be kind to one another, tender, hearted. Forgiving each other. How, Paul, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Have you gone to the cross for somebody? Have you given someone forgiveness to the point of your own death? See, that's how Christ forgave us. That's, that's amazing. Forgiveness may change the heart of the forgiven. Forgiveness always changes the heart of the forgiver. And number three, Forgiveness compounds faith in Jesus. The the work of this in our, God knows this too, but it compounds our faith in Jesus. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, right, Les, that you love one another. How? We've talked about this before. It's not a new commandment. The Shema calls us to love God as ourselves and and Leviticus 19, I believe verse eight, calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the love factor was already in play in Torah and Jesus has a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. He recast love. He redefined love as that full expression of unconditional agape. And he says, that's the deal. That's how you are to love. And that's where forgiveness compounds my faith in Jesus. Because I start to act like him. I start to do what he did. I start to live out his promises. Verse 17 in 1 Samuel 24, Saul said to David, you are more righteous than I, For you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. Saul's figuring this out. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Saul would answer that himself, no. May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Jonathan confirmed it to David and now Saul confirms it to David. There is a prophetic confirmation of the kingdom, though it is coming from the man who has been hunting him. David is gonna hear this again. The promise is still there, David. The promise is still flowing, David. You heard it from your best friend. Now you've heard it from your, the murderous father-in-law. The promise is in play. Amazing, the promise of God. But it's gonna be done God's way. And then verse 21. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. Because that's what the kings of the nations did. You come in and you, just, you slaughter all of the opposition. And Saul says, don't do that to my house. Please, please maintain my name Swear to me this day that you will do it. And David swore to Saul. Did David do it? Yes, he did. We're gonna read the story uh, in uh, several weeks. I would imagine 2 Samuel chapter nine. Let me just give you a little highlight here. David said, is there not yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? See, Jonathan had asked for the same thing protect my house, protect my offspring. Saul now asked for it. it. says there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is not there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. Why? Because he knew he was going to die. <laughs> He's the last of the line of Saul. Little crippled guy hiding out in Lodabar, bring him before the king. He knows I'm in trouble. I'm a dead man. That's it. David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall meet, eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? I wonder in that moment, as David is restoring Mephibosheth and caring for this son of Saul, son of Jonathan, (laughs) and he says, why would you regard a dead dog? He doesn't even know what he's saying, but in the moment, he quotes David. David, back in verse 14, who said, Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? And now Mephibosheth says, Why would you consider a dead dog like me? And I wonder in the moment if David's faith didn't compound as he thought back to when he was a dead dog. And it wasn't Saul who showed David kindness, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. And now he's looking at Mephibosheth and He hears these same words. You know what? Forgiveness compounds faith in Jesus. It just makes your faith grow, strengthen. It returns again and again to strengthen the spirit. Every time you see the forgiven person, especially in a relationship restored, it's gonna compound your faith. And verse 22 tells us that Saul then went up to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Interesting. Both David and Jesus were proven in the wilderness. Both would exit the cave by the word of forgiveness, and both ascended. Jesus ascended to heaven. David now goes back up into the mountain stronghold of En And I believe the literary intent of the Holy Spirit here is to show us David going up in the strength of the Lord. He's going up because of the spiritual summit of his faith in this moment of divine forgiveness that he offers to King Saul. Psalm 57, verse seven, one more time. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory, awake harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O Lord, be exalted. Let your glory be above all the earth. And the glory of the Lord is the number one reason that I am able to forgive. Anyone of anything. Imagine for a moment up there in the caves near the waterfall, the springs of Engedi, and it's the next morning, and you hear David's voice accompanied by David's harp and those quiet flowing waters as he debuted this psalm. What would it have been like to be one of his men? Who are in the cave saying, kill him, kill him, kill him? And David forgives him. And then David begins to sing worship and praises to the Lord. Did his men, once distressed, indebted, discontented, did they begin to recall the souls in their lives and forgive them? Who is the Saul in your life whose teeth have been like spears and arrows? To you, If you would follow Jesus and walk in the spirit, you must forgive. And in forgiving, you will be free, free to worship, free to praise, free to walk in the summit of the spiritual life. Who do you need to forgive? I mean, let's think about that. And as you go from here today, consider, is it, is it a parent? Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? A boss? Is it perhaps a spouse or an ex-spouse? Is it yourself? Who do you need to forgive? God's promises must be done God's way, and God's way is the way of forgiveness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we pray now for divine application. I ask you, Lord, to bring before me, bring to my eyes, bring into the the hideout of my life those who maybe I have not forgiven, people I've struggled to forgive. And by your spirit, I ask for the ability in faith to forgive today. May forgiveness be on all our lips and restoration be the result. But Father, whether or not people receive the forgiveness. May may we be those who forgive, just as you, in Christ Jesus, forgave us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.